Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. <laughs> Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thanks for joining me today. Recently, I had the chance to speak with Andrea Goldman about her new book, Opera and the City, The Politics of Culture in Beijing, 1770-1900. to This came out in 2012 with Stanford University Press. I learned so much from this book. It is an extraordinarily carefully and finely wrought account of the political, social, cultural, performative context of opera in a city that was both a very localized context, but also had empire-wide influence throughout the late Qing. The story combines a really careful reading of some really, really interesting primary sources. So these sources include flower registers, which were a kind of guidebook and connoisseurship literature wrapped into one that talked about the biographies, poetry, gossip, commentary on boy actresses and their sugar daddies in the context of operatic performance in late Qing, Beijing. They also include accounts from the kind of desk copies of playwrights who selectively performed certain scenes of operas in late Qing, Beijing, in a way that in ways that are very wonderfully and very carefully and I think um, very convincingly uh, accounted here by Goldman in the book, that could totally transform the intended point or the intended message of the play and bring about some really interesting um, political ramifications from that. So Goldman's book is both a kind of very sensitive story of the literature of opera, the performance of opera, and at the same time shows how the various attempts to control operatic performance by the state and the various reactions to operatic performance by the different kinds of audiences and publics that experienced it in the urban context had wide-ranging political, social, and cultural implications that went well beyond the temple fairs, the playhouses, and the other spaces of performance that she details so interestingly in the book. So it's a great book. I had a wonderful time talking with Andrea about it, and I hope you have a chance to read the book and also enjoy the interview. Thanks for listening. We're here today to talk with Andrea Goldman about her great new book, Opera and the City, The Politics of Culture in Beijing, 1770 to 1900. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Andrea, and thanks very, very much for making the time to talk with me today about a book I've really enjoyed. Well, thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. Of course. So, Andrea, could you start us off by saying a little bit about what brought you to this general field? How did you come to the study of modern China and particularly perhaps the literature and history of modern China? Well, you know, I began with an interest in, um, how should I say that? I became interested in China when I was in college. Um, partly as a sort of a challenge um, to, to learn the language and to um, attempt to master the language and very quickly discovered that that would be 
a lifetime investment to actually attempt to master the language, but, but I'm very stubborn. And so, um, I wasn't going to quit until I moved a little bit further along in this process of attempting to so-called master the language, which again, if this is um, a lifetime investment to, to, um, get where one wants to go. Um, so, so really began with, um, first an interest in the language and from there, to try and understand or sort of contextualize the language to understand something about society and culture and literature. And uh, really, that's how that's how I began. Um, in terms of the more specific interests in performance and so forth, when I was engaged in language work, um, first in Taiwan and then later in mainland China, I became aware of... Um, really sort of young people who were performing xiangsheng, um, this, um, often it's translated as crosstalk or, um, but, uh, a kind of comedy, usually, usually two person, um, there's a straight man and a comic and, and it's usually men, uh, uh, began watching that and very quickly went from there to finding a semi-professional troupe that I actually, um, began training with and performing with. Um, and that was really wonderful because one of the hardest things, I guess, as we all know, if we are not native speakers of this language, one of the hardest things about learning a language when you're already grown and adult is, is just the, it's boring, the rote memorization. <laughs> and, to have a reason to to memorize, right? To get up there on the stage and perform before people, um, that was a real sort of motivation to get it right, to get the tones right, to not make a fool of myself, um, and to memorize that horribly boring um, vocabulary that you need to memorize. Um, but from there, I mean, that was really a sort of... Um, I always had an interest in performance too, but thought I'd sort of set that aside when I was going into... Um, into Chinese studies. But from there, my experience performing with that troupe, um, discovering that so much of the so-called traditional pieces that, 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 that dated back to at least um, the first half of the 20th century, if not, sometimes it was claimed even into the, the late part of the 19th century, that the jokes all focused on opera. And if you didn't understand the conventions of opera, you weren't going to get the jokes. Um, so being interested in, for lack of a better word, I'll call sort of popular culture, I thought, well, this is a really interesting avenue then into popular culture. If everybody has to have this common denominator knowledge about opera to get the jokes, then this has got to be pretty important. And in some ways that indirectly then led me to being interested in the study of opera in, in Qing times. That's fabulous. And it's always really great um, to hear when topics kind of organically emerge like that from interests that we have. I think sometimes that makes for the most exciting books. And certainly um, that real fundamental organic interest in the topic comes through in the book that we're talking about. So I think that's great. 
So the book、um, is a study of opera and the life of Beijing, the Qing capital, from about 1770 to 1900, and it focuses on aspects of opera history, of urban culture, and of gender representation in that context. So, can you say a little bit about how you wound up、um, coming to focus on that particular time and that particular place? What brought you to this as a focus of, I think, initially your graduate work? Is that right? Yes.、Okay. Yes. To some extent, the the time frame is was determined by the sources. That as I、um, went into the archives to look for what was there,、uh, uh, sources about performance. First of all, sources about performance in the capital were greater than anywhere else. You can find sources for certain other major metropolitan centers. In Qing times,、um, there's some for the city of Yangzhou. There's a little bit for other urban centers,、um, but the great majority come from the capital,、uh, and that's partly because the court was there and it generated documentation. It tried to regulate performance, and so there's a lot that comes out of there. But also, the capital city was where really the greatest playhouses. Were located in Qing times, and to some extent, the project is is bounded by、um, when these sources really begin. And we start to get not just the documentation from the court, but these biographies of performers.、Um, and by, I use that term biography very loosely. That um, writings, um, you know, a little bit like sort of fan magazine writings about performers of. Of various genres of opera, and those come from really the the third to fourth quarter of the eighteenth century, and they really take off at that moment. And part of my discovery in working through these materials and in the book itself was that this is actually really key to、um, to the development of the commercial theaters as well. That that these writings really seem to take off at the time when you have a mature commercial theater. In the urban setting, in, in in the capital city, so in some ways, it was that discovery and looking at what the sources were that allowed me to、um, define the time frame of the project.、Um, the ending mark, nineteen hundred, that really,、uh, in some ways, points ahead to a new project. But seeing that there's something really sort of fundamental that happens to what in the book I talk about is the demimond surrounding. Um, opera performance in the capital, right around 1900.、Um, in part, that comes in from really the, the occupation of the city by a multinational army in 1900 to suppress the boxers, and that changes to a great extent the dynamics of performance and especially the culture surrounding performance in the capital. So, those are the two sort of why it begins in around 1770. Some of the first writings we have about. Commercial performance date to around that time.、Um, I think the first quaput, what I talk about, these flower registers, is 1785. But looking back、um, to several years before, so the date that I picked then was 1770, as sort of when we can start to flesh out this picture of what's happening in this urban space of the capital in terms of performance around 1770, and then ending in 1900. That's great, and one of the things that I always love to hear and to talk about is、um, 
constructive discussion of craft and sources. And one of the things I really loved about this book was the sensitivity to the nature of and an exploration of the sources. And so the Huapu is definitely something um, that we're going to get to. And among uh, mm-hmm. the other kinds of sources that I, I really want to ask you about, because they're fascinating. But before we get to that, the nature of the source of a first book um, is that it usually comes from a dissertation or at least some instantiation of the project that usually precedes the first monograph um, within the context of a dissertation. So that's actually what I'd like to ask you a little bit about, if you don't mind. How did the project transform, if at all, in the movement from dissertation to book? And were there any kind of major transformations along the way in terms of how you were thinking about the structure, um, the kinds of questions you were asking, or any other aspect of the um, of the final book as we have it here? Well, I'll say first is that in the process of writing the dissertation, what I originally thought was going to be chapter one even as I was writing the dissertation, I realized that wasn't chapter one, and that before I could lay out the, the social dynamics of performance in the city of Beijing, I needed to really investigate my sources. Um, and that's why that, that chapter on the Huapu on the flower registers um, ended up preceding the chapter that lays out the sort of the, the social space and the social dynamics of performance in the capital, because but, you know, no one had really looked at what that, that yes, they looked at these texts, um, in some ways these you know, quasi sort of fan guides to um, what was happening in the capital in terms of performance for the information that it could tell them about um, what plays were performed or which actor was good at which parts and so forth, but how they actually worked as texts and how that might reveal the um, motivations um, and the, the concerns of the authors themselves, who are really my greatest informants, other than the court, about what's, what's happening. So even in that process of, of writing, sort of that chapter about the Papu kind of moved to the head of the dissertation. Um, in the course of turning the dissertation into a book, I realized that um, I, I added um, two chapters. There was a lot of... Um, but really in the process of writing the conclusion to the dissertation uh, where I really had to force myself to say, okay, how does this change what we think about Chinese history more generally, that this is not just a study of opera, it's not a history of opera um, per se. I'm trying to sort of engage with other questions about what happens um, in the Qing dynasty. And so in the process of writing that conclusion, in some ways I realized, okay, um, now I can go back and actually write the book because um, I have something to say about sort of why this is important. Um, and also as part of that process, really um, learned that I needed as a complement to the second chapter on the social dynamics of performance in the city, um, what was happening musically. And so that's um, that. Uh, one of the new chapters that I wrote was the chapter three on uh, musical genre. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and then um, I added an additional chapter um, and the sort of scripts in context, uh, the third part of it as well. Well, so let's get right into it because there's a lot of exciting stuff in the book um, and I want to get to as much of it as we can. So 
The book begins by showing, um, by kind of summarizing the fact that opera performance became, as you put it, a hotly contested site of state society friction in Qing, Beijing. And the rest of the chapters are going to explore that and demonstrate that. By the last quarter of the 18th century, as you've um, kind of already mentioned in terms of um, the guidebooks, what, what was happening is Beijing's commercial playhouses were becoming plentiful enough and they were becoming popular enough to generate this new genre of guidebooks to opera in Beijing. And so this is where the first part of the book and the first chapter of the book start. And it's such a fascinating genre that this is, I think, um, where we should start as well. So this is the genre known as flower registers or huapu. Um, can you talk a little bit about this? What's in them? Where do they come from? And what's important for readers to or listeners to know about them in order to understand the argument you're going to make in this part of the book? So they start to be written by, they're mostly men with a fair amount of education who are in the capital city for varying periods of time. We, we don't know a whole lot about many of the writers. They use pseudonyms and very fanciful pseudonyms. Um, we know maybe about the... Uh, the writers for seven or eight of the existing texts. And um, I assume that there were more of these texts that just happened to survive, that they were rather ephemeral. Um, but, uh, but the ones that have survived, um, which we have mostly in, in printed collections that were collated in the early 20th century, um, although there are a few manuscript additions as well for, for some of this. But the ones that have um, survived, uh, of the authors that we can know something about, they were men who were in the capital either with fairly minor appointments um, in that they were capital officials, meaning maybe they were working in one of the central bureaus in the capital as a copyist, um, or they were in the capital as Juren, right, as, as recommended men waiting to take the metropolitan um, highest level of the exams in the capital. And they had time on their hands. They certainly had a fair amount of expendable income because they could go to performance in these commercial playhouses. And they started to write about their experiences going to the playhouse, ostensibly writing about the actors. They're full of um, poems, some rather witty poems, um, some which people might think of sort of a doggerel, not necessarily very good poems, um, which were a kind of advertisement for the performers themselves. Mm -hmm. um, but also what comes through is a lot of positioning or self-positioning or so who else that we learn as much about them. And this became one of my real discoveries in working through this material that we learn as much about the authors themselves and about other people who are going to the theater as we do about the actors that in some ways, sure, we get the descriptions of the actors sometimes in very sort of conventionalized or stylized ways, talking about their beauty or their performance techniques. Um, but we also get a lot about who else is going to the theater, what these men are doing in their spare time, um, how they're associating with the actors or would like to associate with the actors, what are people who are associating with the actors that these men um, do not have access to the actors in the same way. Um, 
what are those people doing? So we get a real picture of what we might call sort of the, the nightlife of Beijing in this time period, because after the theater was over and the, and the performances stopped around dark, um, there was not lighting in the theater at this time in, in, in Beijing. So they had to stop at dark and there were regulations that required them to stop at dark. Um, but the wealthy patrons then went out to eat with the, especially the, the female impersonator roles that were called the, the boy actresses, um, accompanying them as sort of quasi-courtesans, um, called boys, we might say. Um, so we get a real view of that world um, from these texts. Um, one of the reasons why I really wanted to investigate them was not just that we get this picture of sort of who the informants are, um, I think we need to know their biases um, before we can use these texts to settle something about the social history of the time. But that at the same time as they are full of biases, I think they also, the, the men who wrote these texts also saw themselves as historians of sort and we're leaving a kind of record for posterity. Um, there's a real, one of the things I talk about is the way in which a kind of um, public gesture of complaint um, a little bit morose. Says, I have this talent. Here I am in the capital. Nobody recognizes my talent. I see in these young men who are playing the female roles in these boy actresses, they do have talent. And talent is something that's fleeting. And therefore, I recognize that here's somebody who has talent and it might go unnoted. Therefore, I'm going to sort of capture his special qualities um, in a way that preserves it makes it a little less ephemeral. So on the one hand, there's a kind of patronizing attitude on the part of these writers towards the boy actresses, um, but at the same time, a kind of sympathy that, that, that being able to sort of step out of um, uh, a status or a class role and um, find a kind of uh, commonality with others who were really in, in much more difficult circumstances, um, economically, socially, what have you, and sort of appreciate them for their talent. And then again, these men really consider themselves as, uh, at times they talk about them as ethnographers, as sort of early ethnographers, and leaving a record of the theater too, because they really loved what they were watching and, and seeing. And, you know, a number of them say, you know, this is the best theater anywhere in the world. Um, if you want to see the best theater, you've got to come to Beijing and, and, and uh, go to the playhouses in the capital. And one of the really wonderful things about this chapter, too, from the perspective of anybody who's interested in um, really the texture of how to read and how to weave into a narrative different kinds of historical source, is that you're showing in this chapter the ways in which the writers of these registers are actually borrowing language and discourses from other kinds of literatures in order to form this genre. And so a couple of ways this happens. You show how they're actually borrowing discourses about courtesans and actresses to assess these um, boy actresses, to assess teenage boys playing female roles, which is really interesting. Also, um, you're reading this as part of um, a kind of longstanding tradition of connoisseurship literature, again, mm -hmm. showing that some of those uh, textual and discursive structures of connoisseurship literature are being brought in to these guidebooks. So it's really, really interesting for anybody interested in reading about, you know, kind of 
historical craft, um, discourse history, and also, and I'll just kind of mention this um, without mm-hmm. asking you to talk too much about it, but there's also really interesting histories of sex and gender that come into mm-hmm. this. And so in addition to the authors of the text themselves, another really, and, and the actors, another really interesting character that emerges here is that of the sugar daddy. Or mm-hmm. Malmo, um, right. And you talk about the ways that boy actresses could actually be contracted for sex, but the mm-hmm. ways that that sort of plays out or not in this um, literature. So mm-hmm. really, really super interesting stuff happening here. Okay. And we could talk for an entire hour <laughs> after, but I promised, sure. you, I promised you I would try to get to more chapters. I'm going to do that. So as we move from part one to part two of the book, we look at the social history of opera in Beijing, and it moves us from the concerns of literate opera connoisseurs and authors to those of the Qing state. Now, chapter two maps out the spaces of opera in the capital by focusing on some of the key sites of operatic performance. So you talk about the salon, you talk about the temple fair and the different kinds of performance that are um, enabled and uh, that are happening in these two kinds of sites. But you also talk about the playhouse. And this is where um, I'd like to kind of ask you a question or two, if I may. Sure. In talking about the Playhouse, this becomes a site where um, not only do we start seeing um, interesting resonances with Habermas's concept of the public sphere, but also we start seeing um, the chink state coming in and really closely scrutinizing what's going on here. So could you, um, just as a way to kind of open up what's happening in this part of the book, can you talk a little bit about the Playhouse as a, as a space of performance and perhaps the ways in which um, the Qing actually is interested interested in regulating is successful or not in regulating what happens there and the relevance of that for what you're trying to argue in this part of the book. Sure. Um, so And there's a ton here, so yeah. <laughs> I'll just say, in asking, I know in asking you to do this, I'm sort of asking you, yeah. but basically, um, Playhouse, Ching State, what's going on here? So as I said, it's really sort of the, the, the final quarter of the 18th century when these playhouses come into their own, um, kind of transitioning from other kinds of um, sites for a social gathering, whether they're, you know, restaurants or uh, guild houses with, with um, opera stages and so forth, but really sort of coalescing as a place where you have theater troops kind of rotating through um in a, in a pretty regularized circuit, um, and and this gathers sort of grabs the attention of the court because anytime you have um, these sort of sites where you're going to have a lot of people coming together, um, the the court is a little bit wary, and especially it's happening right in the capital. Um, and so the court starts imposing certain sort of regulations that, that they associate. On the one hand, they associate um, performance, uh, this drama, as something sort of very much um, part of Han culture. It's something that they like, that the, 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 the Jing royal household um, themselves likes, but also is a little bit wary of because it's so identified with Han and perhaps especially sort of late Ming culture. Um, uh, with Jiangnan, sort of coming up from Jiangnan. Um, so they don't control it entirely, but they try and confine it to happening within the outer section of the city. So a whole host of um, 
edicts, regulations about where commercial opera performance can happen. Um, and saying, okay, you know, we recognize that this is something important, that people are going to go to it, but you can only have these commercial theaters in the outer section of the city, uh, in the outer city, not in the inner city. Uh, but then, you know, every few years, whether it's five, ten years, a new regulation saying, we really mean it this time. <laughs> you can only have them in the outer section of the city, which indicates that they're actually not very effective or that, that uh, what I talk about is kind of playhouse creep, that, that, um, that someone you know, pushes the envelope a little bit and tries to establish one inside. The other kind of regulation that happens is not only regulation of where these playhouses can be established, but also who can go to them. So anyone in the bureaucracy above a certain rank, I believe it was above ranks then, um, is not allowed to go. Uh, and that didn't matter whether they were sort of Han, um, whether they were Manchu, whether they were in the banners, um, but they're just not supposed to go. But there again, you find sort of in the regulations themselves and then also in these flower registers that, that um, tend to talk about who is actually going to the theater, that these regulations are observed more in breach than in practice. That, that is just a wonderful little um, ditties that, that have been recorded and captured in which um, indication that, you know, the, if you were of sort of rank one or two, you got sort of red cushions versus blue cushions when you sat in the fancy seats in the playhouses. So, so clearly these and, and other um, information such as you know, signs posted on the theater saying, you know, please officials take off your insignia of office, take off whatever the, the peacock feather, which indicates what rank you are or whatever insignia of office um, before you come to the theater. So not to get us in trouble. So there's awareness that the draw of performance is so great that it doesn't matter what the court does, people are still going to go um, and even was able to, you know, to dig up a few um, rather public uh, controversies or cases where, where somebody who did have official rank sort of went and then got into a fight over who was sitting um, in the seats that he wanted to monopolize and so <laughs> accuses the other official of, of uh, going to the theater and then it turns out that, that actually this was all jealousy because somebody else had his favorite seats and, and then he gets um, duly punished by being sent off to the Northeast um, for essentially training in, in horseback riding and, and archery, which again, by this time, um, even if they were sort of Manchu bannermen living in the city, most, many of them had lost those skills or never had those skills to begin with, uh, to be sort of trained necessarily in the Manchu language or horseback riding, archery and so forth. So this would have been real hard labor for that poor opera lover who got sent to the Northeast. Um, so I'm getting carried away with the details and forgetting where I'm going with this. Um, but, uh, Oh, this is good. This is I think you're giving us a really good sense of um, the Qing trying to regulate not just what, or, or rather not just where opera can be performed, but also kind of who can enjoy or not, you know, the performances. So, so you know, these sort of bringing in, um, this comes in in this chapter with, with the court because it was something that the court you know, was, was worried about public association in the city. And um, so there were certain limits. And, and I talk a little bit about a, a kind of sort of unspoken compromise that is worked out in which there are going to be um, 
already who can go to these commercial playhouses is to some extent determined by economic means that, that there is a cost to get in to, to watch the performances there. So really the, the, the poor, the urban poor are left out of this. Um, officials above a certain rank are supposed to be let out, left out of this um, social association in the commercial playhouses, but that actually um, never really sticks. Um, and then women, um, really more by unspoken social convention than anything else, are kept out of these commercial playhouses. Um, uh, and that, that is the kind of sort of negotiation compromise that, that really gets worked out. Over time, one of the real narratives of the book that I discovered as I was writing it is that the Qing court goes from keeping commercial opera performance at arm's length, sort of acknowledging that it's going to exist, they can't eradicate it, maybe they don't even necessarily want to eradicate it entirely, um, even in the capital city, but keeping it at arm's length to actually the second half of the 19th century um, adopting an entirely different approach and saying, no, we like this stuff and we're going to embrace it and make it ours. And in that process, really having a much greater impact, I think, on the the content of performance than they could when they were trying by imperial fiat to say, this can't happen here, you can't go, and so forth. That actually by bringing it within their fold, um, making commercial theater in some ways um, really uh, uh, making there be sort of no real boundary between who was performing in these commercial stages versus who was performing within the court itself. I think they actually had, um, whether this was intentional or whether it just happened to be a better strategy, but actually came up with a better strategy for controlling the content of performance. This is actually perfect because this gets us right into the next chapter um, and what I wanted to talk to ask you about next. So great. So as we move from this chapter into the next um, part of the book, well, not the next part of the book, but rather the next chapter before part three, um, you actually move us to looking at not just where and who were being regulated um, in terms of the Qing attempt to regulate uh, opera performance in the capital, but also what was being um, regulated. And so how they were actually influencing the content of the operas, exactly as you were just mentioning. Chapter three looks at the phenomenon by which the court is actually trying to control social order in the capital and assert supremacy, as you put it, in cultural taste by dictating which operas could and couldn't be performed. And what this does is it winds up hybridizing um, to performed opera as a genre as troops and actors modify their styles to adapt to and try to circumvent state regulations. This is a super interesting part of the book, um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this. How um, how do attempts to regulate uh, the what's actually being performed hybridize the operatic forms that we see emerging out of this context? And, um, and maybe what are some of the really important things in this chapter that are happening that you'd like listeners to make sure that they know? So, yeah. Um, as I said, this is one of those areas that I realized that, that I needed to sort of... Um, fill in this part of the picture as I um, transition from dissertation to book, thinking that, that 
one of the ways in which the court tries to regulate it regulates tries to regulate who can go to these commercial playhouses, where they can exist, but also regulate content by um, dictates about sort of what kinds of opera are okay and what kinds are not okay, um, and. I see at the beginning of the period um, under investigation, so um, in the mid-8th century, on the one hand, the court acknowledges that certain forms of elite theater, um, the Quin opera or Quinju, uh, that that was the favored opera. It begins, of course, in Jiangnan, in, in Suzhou, um, by the, certainly... Um, the late Ming, it's it's empire wide in terms of um, of uh, recognized as the elite theater. Uh, that that the court in some ways says, okay, we acknowledge that you elites have set certain standards of taste in um, artistic performance, and we recognize this too as um, this is sophisticated, um, wonderful stuff. That this can happen along with Yang um, Chang, which was another. A form which was considered somewhat more lowbrow, but but was very much um, of the taste. Perhaps it was more immediately intelligible, um, but of the taste of, of the court, that the court liked that too. Um, so they say, okay, we will allow these two kinds of performances to be performed in the capital city, but other kinds of performances, which were popular at the time, that that cannot be performed in the city. That if you're going to perform, go back to your place of origin and perform them there. That those are, uh, but you're not going to come and pollute our capital with that kind of performance. Now, I think what's at stake here is not just about um, artistic taste and, um, on the one hand, the court trying to sort of master that and say, okay, sort of we acknowledge you, Jiangnan elites, your taste in opera, we're going to recognize that as the elite form of opera. Um, and by recognize that, we sort of get a handle on the situation, that we show ourselves to also be um, connoisseurs. Um, and, and I try and sort of put this in the context of other sort of major imperial projects of the late 18th century Two, such as um, the Sukuchenshu, um, the Four Treasuries Project, and other um, compendiums that uh, throughout the 18th century the, the Qing court is producing, which show them to be authorities by, by mastering everything. Right? They become authorities on all culture, whether it belongs to Manchu, to Han, what have you. Um, that, that's part of the same process, um, perhaps in miniature, with what's happening with opera. Um, that so that's one thing that the Qing court is doing. But what's also I think at stake here is a kind of recognition that certain kinds of audiences are going to be drawn to certain kinds of opera. And so a sense that sure there may be some tensions between those Jiangnan elites and the court itself, but a sense that these people still know how to control themselves in public settings. And at first, a fear that it's the rabble, right? The people who are attracted to the other so-called more lowbrow kinds of performance, that that's going to be what's going to create public disturbances. And so an attempt to control those kinds of performances. Um, but when certain kinds of theater, uh, one which is talked about a lot in these huapu is something called Qinjiang, which seems to come in from sort of Sichuan, Shanxi, that area, um, 
the, the scholarship that's done on this thinks that it's really brought in through sort of um, traveling from those areas into the capital and so forth, um, that at first that's prescribed by the court. But people clearly like it. Um, and we have records, not just from the capital of Beijing, but all the, as far south as, as Yangzhou, that this kind of took really the, the empire by storm, and especially some of the actors, practitioners who were involved in this. Um, and so one of the things I tried to do in this chapter is not just look at what the court's doing, but look at how other so-called social actors as well are negotiating these regulations. And what I think I can do really through this look at genres, look at the way in which troops themselves, um, obviously we don't have any um, records that have someone leaving this directly, but sort of indirectly the way in which, okay, Qingjiang is prescribed now. I may still be practicing this, but I'm going to call it something different. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so in this process, you get a kind of hybridization. So people who, if you actually look at the repertoire of what the troops are performing, it's repertoire that comes from the Kunapa repertoire, uh, but performing it in a way which makes use of some of the singing techniques, some of the, um, the melodies that are coming from other regions as well. So you get then it's sort of hybridized. Um, sometimes some of the Chinese scholars talk about it as Cao um, Kun. Um, it's a sort of right, a sort of grassy, grassy Kun opera, or sort of um, sort of not uh, not what we might call um, sort of codified, sort of recognized um, Kun opera of the time. But also one of the things that's going on here is this is precisely late 18th century, the time when Kun opera is starting to be codified. So I'm looking at these sort of various tensions um, around genre, where the court's trying to control it in certain ways. You have um, actors with troops trying to negotiate these regulations. And then you have other Jiangnan literati who are disgusted by what's happening to their favored style of performance um, in these commercial settings and trying to kind of preserve something special about Kuan Opera, um, which I think is also part of the story of, in some ways, sort of the death of Kuan Opera or the near death of Kuan Opera um, by the end of the chain is, is that to sort of make it rarefied, make it special, um, and um, make sure that those sort of polluting or hybridizing influences of other genres um, do not become a part of the performance tradition, which um, in some ways I think made it less exciting for, for audiences, for audiences in the urban center. Thank you so much. Now, again, one of the things you just mentioned leads us really beautifully into the next book. So one of the things um, that was happening, and you get into this in part three of the book, Plays and Performances, as you mentioned, was that troops and actors are adjusting to these regulations and sort of hybridizing this form, not just by choosing what to perform, but also choosing how to perform it. And what's happening in part three is we start to see commercial opera in the 18th and 19th centuries taking this form where 
performances are rarely complete versions of the plays as sort of as written, but rather mm. there's a selection of scenes um, that happens in ter- before a troupe decides what to perform. So they're performing selected scenes that they're choosing before the actual performance, and this could actually dramatically alter the meanings that could be derived from the performances of the same play. It's super mm-hmm. fascinating, and it's again a really interesting use of um, sources to tell this story. So chapter four looks specifically at the Garden of Turquoise and Jade, Feitsui Yuan, um, as an example of how this was happening. So can you start us off by very briefly kind of just introducing the plot? What is this play about before we then can look at the example of, okay, now that we know what this play is about, how are troops altering or choosing um, the scenes to perform and how is that giving the audiences a particular vision um, of the play and the lessons to be derived from it. So first, what is the play about and what do we need to know to understand how Qing selection is happening? Okay, so, so the play, um, it's written in the early Qing and it's it's a melodrama, um, or I call it a melodrama, um, and you could say sort of literally in terms of melodrama, meaning sort of a drama set to melodies or, or drama with music, but also in terms of Trisha portrayed as sort of very black and white, very dichotomous. There's there's um, there's heroes and there's villains, or heroines and villains. Um, so it's set um, in uh, the in Ming times, and uh, so it's a historic play of sorts. And there are some actual historical figures who who um, have sort of cameo roles in the play. But it's it's a tension between a poor Confucian scholar, down in his luck, has no money. Um, he has a wife and uh, a son who's sort of heading towards manhood, not quite there when the play begins. Um, uh, they're poor, they're down and out. He has to make his living by working as a teacher in some other part of the, the empire. Uh, and his piece of land that um, his that his family owns uh, is spied upon by his wealthy, corrupt neighbor who is a crony of uh, one of the main princes. And um, the, 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 the neighbor wants to make a perfect garden, that is the garden of Jade, to ingratiate his way um, into the good graces of the prince who he's working for. Uh, but his land isn't a perfect square, and so he needs to purchase the land from the poor scholar in order to make his garden. Uh, when he tries to purchase the land, he's rebuffed. He's going to get the land by hook or crook, by any means possible. And so then sort of the tensions of the play begin to develop, um, the ways in which uh, uh, he accuses the scholar of having um, robbed the gravesite of, of, of the prince or the, the gravelands of the prince, which is a capital offense. Um, he's thrown in prison. The son manages to escape. There's, there's, um, there's a trial. An upright judge dismisses the case, but then the Mafangjur, uh, the villainous neighbor, um, has himself appointed as judge, and it's retried, and the poor scholar is thrown into prison. So at this point, there's no recourse through the legal channels to to help the scholar. And that's when um, a poor woman as a seamstress who has befriended the family, um, she 
comes into the to, to rescue the poor scholar, along with the poor Yaman runner who was sent to make the arrest, who it turns out had been um, the beneficiary of uh, a kind gesture by the poor scholar earlier earlier on. So the two of them together um, try to save the scholar. And the way they do this is they steal the official tally, which um, indicates when the poor scholar is to be executed. They steal it. And, um, and so that really is sort of ends the first half of the play. Um, second half of the play is all about sort of military strategizing that actually deals with, again, a historical incident of the uprising of the Prince of Ning, uh, who was a main prince uh, in 1519, and then the suppression of the uprising. Now, when this play was actually played out on the stage, the second half of the play, for the most part, dropped out of performance. But those scenes um, really were as far as we can tell, almost never performed. Sometimes an ending scene in which you had a sort of happy ending where the seamstress ends up getting um, married to the poor scholar's son, who is now, of course, this is um, sort of the, the happy endings, uh, who has now managed to succeed as the sort of top candidate in the exams. So he's um, the top candidate. She ends up sort of uh, becoming his his wife or his 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 partner. Uh, sometimes that scene was performed, but for the most part, it was the scenes of the kind of, what I talk about as sort of emotional highlights and scenes really focusing on the injustice um, which can be perpetrated by people in power, and the heroes come out very clearly as being the poor scholar, but even more than the poor scholar, really the the young woman seamstress. Um, Beautiful, of course, so the audience gets such the pleasure of looking at the boy actress who's impersonating her as well. Um, but really, um, she comes through as the strongest character, as well as the clown who's the, the Yaman runner, um, and he provides some comic relief and, and um, is as well. But those two come through with the greatest characterization, and so I read that as. You know, this was; these were the scenes that the audience sort of really gravitated to, particularly the scene in which the young woman steals the tally out from under the nose of the sleeping villain, um, and it involved a lot of sort of suspense, some comedy. She has to sort of reach for the tally several times as he sort of moves as he's sleeping and, and snoring and so forth. Um, one of the ways that I really um, worked with this material and trying to sort of reconstruct this was I found these wonderful. Um, what we might today call sort of production scripts, that, that because it was um, done in the Quinopera style, we have the choreography scores of this as well as the musical scores. Um, so as well as full dialogue and um, arias, we have the choreography as well. So able to sort of reconstruct sort of how that might have played out on the stage and then, again, looking at the commentary um, in these sort of guides to the actors that are also written at the time, sort of what really seemed to resonate with audiences as well. And this is really, um, so as you've already mentioned, it's an important kind of source to look at. It's also mm. an important corrective for those of us who read, you know, full, sort of the fully fleshed out uh, scripts or texts of operatic um, 
uh, works, right, of operatic works, of plays, and assume that those are somehow mappable onto what audiences would have experienced. I mean, you're showing here that not at all. I mean, in fact, what audiences would have experienced somehow is giving them, or sometimes, often in this case, is giving them a very, very different lesson and a very, very different experience of the morals of the play than we would have assumed if we just looked at the full, fully fleshed out play itself. And so it's a really, yes. um, you know, the, we tend to, as historians, be constantly reminding ourselves and reminding our students that there's the rules and then, mm-hmm. you know, what actually happened. And we need to be sensitive to the fact that one doesn't necessarily entail the other. And this is actually taking that really important insight and mapping it onto a kind of text and a kind of really important venue for popular performance, popular culture. And as you're showing here, a venue for expressing social complaint here and a mm-hmm. venue for regulation that we might not otherwise um, be sensitive to. So I think this is a really important um, it's kind of a lesson for anybody reading this um, about the importance of being sensitive to the distinction between the is or, or the ought rather and the is in terms of historical sources. It's really fascinating. So I talked a little bit about the happy ending. Um, what I argue in this chapter is that most of the time the happy ending wasn't performed. Right. Uh, and that, that where the performance comes to an end, the so-called you know, full production scripts, and I'm doing, you can't see them, but I'm doing sort of scare quotes because I'm saying full um, production scripts, usually ended with um, the the good characters, the poor skull and his son who are on the run, um, the, the mother of the seamstress who saved the day has just been slaughtered by the henchmen of the evil villains, and a real kind of um, the final aria that she sings is about how you know, upset she is. Her mother's just been killed, and, and, and so the performance would have ended there. Lots of room for audiences to sort of sympathize if they felt bullied, if they felt that that, that could read themselves into the subject position of of the heroes of the play who are taken advantage of by those with power and wealth and with connections. Um, and I think that had a real resonance. So what I talk about is this kind of um, resentment or this um, polemics of complaint, um, which... This I, I do the analysis through this one storyline, but I think this was indicative of a certain kind of performance, which was very popular um, in the urban setting at this time. And again, using this sort of only certain scenes are performed. Um, you know, occasionally, yes, there was the happy ending, but that was done. Um, that was done often alone, sort of just the happy ending scene. And what you could get out of that, the happy ending scene, was that you know, the woman who kind of takes it into her own hands, um, does a sort of vigilante action to save the poor scholar, she's going to get to marry the top candidate in the exams. Um, and there's no sense of um, that, that in the original full script, she becomes a sort of secondary consort, uh, the, the, the concubine of the scholar, and actually the scholar is paired off with the daughter of the villain. Right? So it's a happy ending because even the villain is brought into the fold of goodness through his virtuous daughter. That too, the sort of two women and one man, that drops out of performance. Um, Except in the case, we do have a record of probably how it was performed at court, where the double wedding of the two women to the one man is preserved, um, as in the original script. Um, So there are two interesting ways in which sort of 
gender and gender politics maps onto other kinds of politics as well. And sort of the underdog of the hierarchies of gender become part of um, the story as well. And what these um, audiences in the capital, a man with some wealth and power themselves, but found um, inspiring in, in, in these underdog characters. Now, the next chapter, chapter five, also sort of takes these kinds of insights and uses them to look at another example of this um, imperfect match between the full scripts of the plays as fully fleshed out and what was actually performed. And it does this by focusing on performance scripts of a category um, of operas that you call the B movies of their time. These are the I sister-in-law operas and they're I sister-in-law because that was often the first word or the first set of words said by the protagonist as she kept um, or came onto the stage. So the basic storyline here for of these B movies um, that were actually I sister-in-law operas, the basic storyline is pretty consistent and you flesh this out here. There's a woman um, who gets estranged from her husband. She fails in her attempt to seduce the husband's brother, either a biological brother or sworn brother. She thereafter um, has an adulterous relationship with another lover. And finally, there's a punishment inflicted upon her for her licentiousness. The plots of these operas are largely derived from the Shui Hu Zhuan, or the water margin story cycle. Now, there's also here, we see a difference. And you show us that Whereas in the sophisticated literary scripts of these operas, they tend to sort of remold the women in the tales into clever and sympathetic heroines, right? Whereas the scripts that were directed at less sophisticated audiences instead focus on male revenge, right? They focus on the murder of the licentious woman. So can you talk a little bit about this um, example and also um, perhaps how, um, if we can bring the Qing back into this in terms Uh of the Qing state, how did the Qing feel about these and um, what does this chapter and the different ways these plays were performed tell us about um, the, the Qing state and their interest in and success or not in regulating um, opera at this time? Sure. Um, so, yes, I mean, the first half of that chapter looks in a similar way to what I do in the, the previous chapter with the, uh, the Garden of Turquoise and Jays. Look at the way in which the um, production history of these much longer um, trenchy dramas. Um, the selected scenes um, tend to put the focus on what the audiences wanted was really sort of the, the sex and the flirtation um, and, and, and turns the women who are in um, Sri Hudran in the dramas that are based, the long trenchy, Ming Dynasty trenchy dramas based on the Sri Hu story cycle, um, they're definitely the villains, um, but turns them into the more sympathetic characters. Uh, what happens, what I see happening as this material moves into the less, um, less highbrow genres, in some ways it's sort of less... It's still scripted, but it's less literary. So as it moves into less literary genres, and it moves into the Pihuang, which becomes the precursor of what we know today as sort of Peking opera, as it moves into that genre, um, the the full story is sort of rehabilitated. So in the Kun opera versions of these stories, um, the the framing drops away, um, allowing the possibility 
for audiences to really sympathize with the women who should be the villains um, and, and find a kind of sympathy in, again, um, uh, perhaps speaking truth to power or being transgressive in some ways um, and taking real delight um, in uh, the sex, I mean, this, uh, the sex and the flirtation. Um, so in that sense, too, being a little bit transgressive and getting to indulge in this moment of the flirtation, the transgression, the in public too, in these in these public playhouses. Um, when the full story is rehabilitated, the real emphasis, um, it's not that the sex and the flirtation go away, but the emphasis is on violence and sort of male vigilante violence against the women who upset um, the social and moral order. And so these women sort of meet their death in a really rather grisly way. Um, and I look at the way in which that too would have been played out on the stage. And there's a kind of, um, what I talk about as sort of aestheticization of the violence, which would have made it really entertaining to watch the violence. Um, and so then a kind of tension between what a more educated audience might have gravitated to in watching the, um, in being drawn to the coin opera versions where the emphasis was on the sex importation versus a somewhat less educated urban audience who really would have gravitated to um, the violence. So did the audience more to the sex or more to the violence? And in the Pihuang plays, there's much more emphasis on the violence, which restores, again, the sort of social and moral fabric of the universe. And I see the court um, by the late 19th century as really um, being in sympathy with that more lowbrow kind of script in which the social and moral fabric of the world is restored at the end, um, even if violence becomes the means um, and very disruptive violence becomes the means by which uh, those ends are achieved. Um, and I see that as part of, um, this is just one example or one case study of that sort of late 19th century Qing court embrace of the more lowbrow um, Pihuang opera and the kinds of stories conveyed through the more lowbrow genre. Um, and seeing that as a possibility of culturally restoring um, and, and keeping order on a world which in many ways is falling apart by this time. So, Andrea, there's, <laughs> it begins, the book begins with an overture and ends with a coda. And in the coda, you talk about a couple of things that just to respect your time, I'm not going to um, ask you to talk about, although you kind of feel like, but just kind of mention for listeners so that they have a sense of how this um, closes. You, you talk in the coda about how the playhouse never became a true public scene, mm-hmm. although it did um, become, or opera itself did become an important, as you call it, an important public site for performing patriotism and for the Qing court for performing ethnicity. You also um, direct our attention to and, and emphasize the importance of a sea change in the middle of the 19th century um, at the point of the Taiping Rebellion that marks mm-hmm. off a really important shift between pre and post Taiping rebellion culture in terms of in terms of the court's relationship to urban commercial theater, in terms of elite preferences in opera, and also in terms of the changing sympathies toward gender 
and toward mm-hmm. the class and toward the transgressions of both as they play out on stage. So there's a, a lot here um, that's very, very rich that's also not just about the culture and history of opera, but that as the entire book does, uses this very sensitive and very nuanced reading of the sources of opera to make much larger claims about the nature of this period in Qing history and about modern Chinese history in general. It's a very, very rich work. So given that, um, there's a ton in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about. It's an extraordinarily rich, um, as is probably obvious from the um, from the conversation already for listeners, it's an extraordinarily rich study. And we only just barely scratched the surface. And so hopefully readers will go on and read the book in detail. And, and I highly, highly recommend that they do so. Given that, is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about or anything in general about the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners? Yeah, let, let me talk about, um, you know, one of the things which sort of I end the book with this observation that, you know, so much of what we think about um, as sort of chain culture um, is the view of Qing culture that we get post Taipei, um, very conservative. I talk about a little bit as a, a kind of um, neo-Confucian fundamentalism. Uh, uh, and so much of the rest of Qing history, we look at through that prism that we get. So I think the kind of, sort of texture of urban life, the kind of possibility for, if not outright transgression, um, sort of acting out a little bit that we see in the playhouses of the late 18th century and the early 19th century um, that we haven't seen that. Um, and so one of the things my book is trying to do is really flesh out this picture that this that there was this really vibrant um, world of um, performance in the capital cities or right under the nose of the Qing. Right? We've come to think of the Qing as so, you know, imposing um, this is neo-Confucian rigor and, and sort of squashing all that sort of late Ming um, expressiveness. And I think that um, that's an overly simplified picture. So one of the things I'm trying to do in the book is to sort of bring that out, um, this, this lively urban culture that we get in the late 18th century, uh, in the capital, late 18th century, early 19th century. But one of the way, one of the things I think is very important to do that is to get not just sort of what happened, but to try and capture, and I, I really paid a lot of attention to this in the writing of the book, try and capture the flavor. So the kind of wit, um, the kind of, to, to um, give a sense too of not just you know, what's being said, but the way it's being said. So there's a lot of, as I said, sort of poetry and doggerel, but much of it is humorous. And to try as much as possible, it's very hard in translation, but try and capture a sense of um, the playfulness and, and the wit that comes out of these sources that I look at. Um, so I really paid a lot of attention to that in the writing of this book. Um, and that, I think, really does come out. And if, if I had to predict the answer to the next question I'm going to ask you, I would predict, and this may be totally wrong, um, I may predict, or I'd predict it has something to do with this history of humor or comedy, but maybe I'm completely wrong. So here's the question. Um, now that the book is out, and congratulations, it's a fabulous book, what's next for you? What are you currently working on, and um, what can we hope to see in the future? 
Well, I have two projects, and both of them really grow out of this book. One is, um, which I think is a little bit more on the back burner now, but one project is I'm thinking about um, sort of a history of gossip in the 18th and 19th century, because so much of, again, what I look at in these flower registers, what I call flower registers in Kwampu, it's gossip. Um, and so looking at that as one genre, but there are other textual genres that are also um, very concerned with gossip at this time, whether it's the BG, um, and of course it's not entirely new with the BG, but, but the way in which they're interested in gossip in the 18th and 19th century is, I see it as a little bit different. Um, novels, um, I make use of um, one novel quite a bit in this work, um, Pinghua Baojian, or um, Precious Fear of Boy Actresses. Uh, um, but that too, you know, it's, it's well, I'm finding sources that look at the way in which that was not as a novel. I mean, the author in his preface had to say, this is really fictional. Don't take it as anything real. But, but readers wanting to read it as sort of veiled um, gossip about um, actual historical figures. So, so sort of one project sort of takes me back to the late 18th century and is looking at um, a history of gossip in the mid-Ching mid to late Qing. The second project, and this is the one that I'm more actively working on now, uh, picks up right about 1900, when the first book ends, and looks at, in some ways, the collapse of the cultural world surrounding opera. Um, looking at that in the context of 1900, you have a um, multinational foreign army foreign force occupying the city, um, how that shapes, not just sort of immediately the closing down of the theaters and the court and actors scattering, but after the reestablishment of the theaters and people come back, I see it really a shift in the culture. And this is, it begins with what's happening in opera, but moves from there more to a history of um, transformation in the culture of commercial sex uh, uh, right around 1900, where prior to this time, it might be a little bit risque for these educated gentlemen to you know, spend their leisure time hanging out with the boy actresses who sort of doubled um, some of them um, engaged in sex work as well. Um, but that gets tagged as part of what's wrong with China. It's backwards, it's feudal, what have you. All these labels come into play that sort of tars those associations, which, as I said, might have been a bit risque before this time, but are common practice. And almost overnight, the institutionalization of heterosexual commercial sex in the capital, partly because you have a multinational foreign army that wants to be serviced in multiple ways, including sexually. Um, so looking at this transformation, um, that's, and, and so the relationship between the development of what we call a normative um, commercial heterosexuality and, um, and the theater world. That's what I'm working on next. Not comedy, but gossip and sex, even better. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, Andrea, best of luck on those projects. Um, they sound fabulous, and I'll look forward to talking with you about any or all of those in the future. Thank you so much for making the time. It's really been a pleasure. Well, thank you. I enjoyed getting a chance to talk about it. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>